You are listening to Investing Matters, brought to you in association with London Southeast. This is the show that provides informative, educational, and entertaining content from the world of investing. We do not give advice, so please do your own research. Hello, and welcome to the Investing Matters podcast. My name is Peter Higgins, and today I have the huge honor of speaking with the award-winning investment journalist, Moira O'Neill. Moira was previously head of content at Interactive Investor, editor at MoneyWise, personal finance editor at Investors Chronicle, and deputy editor at Money Observer. Moira is now an independent freelance investment and money writer, editor, and presenter, and a columnist for the Financial Times, and a regular contributor to TV and radio programs. Feel very privileged to have you, Moira. Welcome. Pleasure to be here. Now, um, Moira, you've you've had a fantastic career um, in the investment industry. You, as I said earlier, you've, you've won awards for, for for the work that you do. But I want to start this conversation, if I may, going back to when you were a wee nipper, right? And you were 12 years of age. And my daughter's now a teenager as well. So she wanted to be an architect and you wanted to be an architect. But then off you went to Cambridge University, did your degree and your master's in classics, and here we are. What happened between that 12-year-old Moira to 20-year-old Moira? What happened? Uh, well, the, the architecture dream was um, stopped by uh, a work experience placement. <laughs> when, I, when I saw the reality of it and they didn't get to build wacky dream houses all the time, um, <laughs> I gave up on that. Um, and I, then I was influenced by a teacher, a classics teacher, who was absolutely brilliant and inspirational, as lots of people are, you know, teachers who can, can have a profound effect on you. So I thought, oh, this is a wonderful world and classics is a multidisciplinary degree so it's um you know it gives you literature art history um language archaeology politics philosophy <laughs> so I thought well since I don't really know what I want to do that sounds like quite a fun thing to do for three years or so <laughs> so off I went and did that and of course at the end of it I was a bit shell-shocked didn't know actually what to do as a career <laughs> anyway um, having read up on a few career stuff, I thought journalism sounds really like my thing. And um, I fired off literally 300 applications um, to try and get some work experience because that's um, super, super important um, to be able to, you know, practice it and to be able to get a job. Fortunately, I got a couple and then I got a job. And the job that I got was um, on Pensions World magazine, which is uh, was a bit of a baptism of fire in terms of the financial industry, because it's a magazine that was not aimed at pensioners, as I thought, but it was aimed at yes. pension lawyers, actuaries oh. and all the technical people in the background. So the wow. stuff I was editing and, and writing had to appeal to that uh, dynamic and that that sector. Um I think I was the brilliant thing about that job was the first piece I was set to write. I had to go off on these things called trustee training courses. So big pension funds um, have sort of lay people as trustees and there was training being laid on for them, which would introduce you to investing to what a pension is, to the possibilities of long-term growth, um, et cetera, and the needs of people who are in the pension funds. And so, you know, that was 
that was great. So that really, really helped me get to grips with the financial world. And I think if I hadn't have had that experience, I would have found that job really difficult. Um, I didn't know whether I was going to stick with financial journalism, but I think once you get to know a bit, you start to want to know more and you get sucked in. And here I am 25 years later, still doing elements of what I started out doing at the start of my career. Absolutely brilliant. Yeah, you said it was a baptism of fire. You're going in and working with the experts straight away. So absolutely fantastic. So you were assistant editor at Pensions World, editor at Health Insurance Magazine for a little while. And then the big, I'm looking at this as a, as a big break here, deputy editor of Money Observer 2002 to 2008. Now that is seriously taking on some responsibility there. Yeah, How was that for you? Well, Money Observer was something that my own father had been reading for many years. Huge. Yeah. Um, so I was very familiar with it. So it felt brilliant to get a job on that title. Um, look at, that, look I, at me also, in the magazine. Yeah. Pardon? Yeah, yeah. Um, and also it felt brilliant because I was, um, I'd been working in the sort of technical side, the business to business writing, and I had a craving to write for consumers people who are, you know, uh, and to try and, you know, communicate and educate. And so Money Observer magazine, which sadly is no more, but back then was fairly big on the newsstands and um, was part of Guardian Media Group um, when I started there, um, was it was sort of a brilliant place to be, um, sort of dream job, um, writing about investments, pensions, tax planning, ISAs, um, and and then some sort of personal finance stuff like insurance, like you know um, mortgage planning, all of that. So, but mainly on the investment side. Brilliant, yeah, fantastic uh, magazine, and, and and I was really shocked when it when it closed. I was, I was like, what's going on here? There's something not right there, you know. As absolutely institution that was the Money, money Observer. Um, so from from there, you went to the FT. You became the personal finance editor. Of Investors Chronicle, um, a magazine that I've I've been purchasing for for years now, and formed my um, education regarding investing. So I'll I'll thank you personally now whilst you're on the air. So thank you for that, Moira. Now, so so you led the Investors Chronicle. It obviously, it became an award-winning finance team that you were part of. Can you tell me some of the some of the topics you covered there and the and the growth and what you actually engendered? Because you you did really did switch it up a gear during the time that you were there for seven years. Yeah, I did. Well, I thought we needed to expand the coverage of collective investments, so funds and investment trusts and ETFs as well, um, because Investors Chronicle traditionally covered had a brilliant companies team, so identifying you know good good opportunities. But my my expertise or my the stuff I I did know about was funds and and, and investment trusts, not really. Um, direct shares um and the readers seem to have appetite for that we 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 um would see reader portfolios where people were mixing direct company shares alongside collectives it was very much like not a you either do one or the other people were mixing it up even back then um and this is 15 years ago um so yeah we decided that we'd do a um a lot more coverage and we do our own recommendations so i launched um like a, a recommended list so i did um top 
I think it was top 100 funds. I launched that for Investors Chronicle and we did it every year. And we got we got sort of kind of panel of experts and our own in the industry, plus our own views to try and select the best funds across uh, different asset classes, basically. Um, so and readers loved it um, and it became a bit of a Bible. And then I decided that once we've done that, we ought to we've done the active funds. We ought to do the ETFs. Yes. So we did a top 50 ETFs a couple of years later. Uh, and again, I spearheaded that. So it was sort of looking for the ones that track their indices best. And and um, yeah, it was it was it was really um, a good piece of research. Um, and I expanded the reader portfolios, which um, we, we were told time and time again, when people opened the Investors Chronicle, the first thing they liked to turn to was the reader portfolio, because they were inher inherently curious about what other people were doing with their money. And um, these weren't always like, um, you know, real names and people couldn't be identified. We let people submit portfolios anonymously. So you would say, you know, it's, it's he's, this guy is, you know, 60 and he want, you know, he wants to retire in two years or he's a 28 year old who's gone um, gung ho into oil stocks or something like that. So we always tried to yes. pick something that was interesting uh, yes. and, to, and, and appeal to a different part of the readership um and then we would we would be quite brutal sometimes about what we thought of them <laughs> uh, and how they could be improved and, and for me that was a bit of a labor of love it felt like a huge honor and privilege to be given somebody's portfolio and select you know carefully a couple of experts to give a view and then inject my own view as well um i just loved doing that i probably did that for about seven years analyzing people's portfolios and seeing you know where people are getting it right where people are getting it wrong the same themes kept coming across people like to collect stuff <laughs> you they know do. They, they, they really you know it's, and it's very very hard to to sell investments that you've held for years and you're sort of emotionally attached to and we, we saw that theme coming up time and time again um, and there would be like a long stream of things in, in the portfolio that was all, each one was worth about 1% of the portfolio. And you think, well, it's not really, I know you love it, but it's not really making that much difference to your end outcome if it's such a tiny holding. So we we're always telling people to tidy it up and be brutal and here's what to sell. <laughs> and, here, you know, and if you're going to sell it, buy more of this one, you know um by um so that was that was fun but you know also people um holding things in the wrong wrappers you know like you know maybe, maybe you know you want to be thinking about holding different investments in an ISA different investments in a pension um trying to reduce the charges because quite often if you hold a whole whole load of random stuff that you've collected over the years um you end up with higher charges than you might have, or you might be holding the wrong um, share class of the fund. So there were lots of people would have a lot of legacy um, funds that had high charges on them. And we would say, you know, you can hold the same thing managed by the same fund manager, but with a lower charge. Um, and here's here's what to switch to. So, yeah, it was fascinating, that that job. Brilliant. Now, I love that reply. I want to come back to some of the points that you've made there 
a bit later on. But I want to go back. There's a very important bit in the middle of, the, of your time at, um, at the Investors Chronicle slash the FT. And that was the, the Winkert Foundation Award that you got, Moira. You did some heavy lifting regarding a piece of work that you did. I want you to share the importance of that work and why it was recognised by, by the foundation. Well, I mean, I entered a few things for that award. Um, I think you get to enter three, we did back then. Um, so I was showcasing some nice writing. I was showcasing, gosh, it was it was like, um, I think it was an income investment piece where we'd analysed income from investment trusts alongside dividends. I can't remember exactly. Um, it was back in 20, 2011, 2012. Um, yeah, you, 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 you know, were paying... The wording I've got here, the judges said, Moira's diligent and painstaking analysis and ranking of unit trusts is the kind of heavy lifting we expect from the Investors Chronicle. And she combines this with readable and accessible copy across her subject. Her articles are valuable both for professional and non-professional investors, a model for uh -huh. what personal financial journalism should be aiming at. Well... Thank you. That was you that's go. very nice of you to read all of that out. <laughs> when, when I'm having a down day, I go back and read that comment from 2012 from the Wincott Foundation. Um, no, it's um, standard. You set standards. That's what it was about. Yes, and I, I think it was related. We had entered the top hundred funds for that, so that was the, that they loved that. They loved the analysis that went into it. I mean, it was. It was probably about a 10, 10 pages of the Investors Chronicle that I took over for that. So it was a big piece piece of research. Um, but yeah, no, wonderful to win win an award. It's it's the big one in my sector. And um it was brilliant to get the recognition. Um yeah, I thought job done really for one. Absolutely, um, absolutely. Yeah. Cool. So after the the FT, you, some other people came looking for you, and you became the editor of MoneyWise, another fantastic magazine of its day. Um, and you moved over to there, and you redesigned that magazine and relaunched the, and you went to the website, you know, as well. Yeah, yeah, there was so, it was yeah. quite yeah. Right. MoneyWise was wonderful in in a different way. It was um, it was trying to make everything as engaging and as accessible as you possibly could because we thought you know people will pick this up this magazine up knowing nothing about money stuff um there will be something on the cover will have appealed and we want them to find that it's you know visually engaging that it's got brilliant pictures graphs everything infographics in it you know a proper magazine experience relating to money um in its broader sense because we didn't do a huge amount of investment coverage for money wise there was a lot of how to be smart with energy bills how to be you know uh you know the sort of the martin lewis type of um money saving um yeah so i mean it was a brilliant experience um i loved the sort of bringing us sort of a creativity and an energy to money and and trying to always um improve visually what we did um in the magazine and on on the website too because we had to relaunch that um yeah but sadly money wise is no more either all these things i've worked for in my career <laughs> i know i know um, it's such a, such a shame yeah but it, it you know it, it served its purpose i think the problem with prints 
um, magazines is they, they do rely on advertising. Um, and if you're not served so well by um, the industry that that's um, then you can't really sustain it. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. oh. Then um, on to head of personal finance as interactive investor, which is where you were up until um, last July. Um, and again, there you, you shook things up there as well, headed up content and investment research and public relations for business. And you yeah. helped, you know, you did quite a lot of work there. Do you want to share some of the, the nuances of what you were doing there? Because we, we yeah, went well, from seeing II as quite this, this small sort of entity that was doing a lot of different things, but all of a sudden we saw them actually being very proactive in a sense of, especially during lockdown, we saw more and more, I don't like using the word content because it's such a, I think it's a really lower bar to set, but lots of different information interacting, became interactive, became interactive, if I can use that analogy. Yeah, I mean, that that was the goal. We set out um, to do sort of campaigning PR, basically. So, you know, let's see how we want to change the investment industry for the better. Um, let's see what we can do as a business to um, help investors. And we had some, you know, big campaigning successes. So one was on um, shareholder democracy. It's a really big, important theme for us. So that's encouraging people to get involved with the investments that they own and to take ownership over those decisions. So to make sure that the companies that they invest in are uh, are, are doing good things, um, whether it's on the environmental, social or governance side, um, and to wield their power as a shareholder and to vote on the shares when they get an opportunity. Um, so, um, yes, we're really encouraging people to do that and trying to promote the kinds of issues that come up. Um, so, um, yeah, it was, it, was, it was pretty successful. And then, you know, we really campaigned on financial education. So we ran something called the um, Personal Finance Teacher of the Year Awards which was a real labour of love to try and encourage teachers who are really time poor to enter an award. Um, but we, we managed to keep that going and to you know get some absolutely brilliant entries from all around the country, um, showcasing you know really engaging lessons that were to encourage, um, to educate young, with young children and secondary school age children, because we had two categories about money and um some of them were just so fantastic they would use things that really appeal to children um so like them their teenagers it would be their phone um or hair how much does it take to get hair extensions and this kind of thing and use it in real life scenarios to educate them about getting into debt about things they want or need um, and all and, and sort of healthy money habits um and then the primary school age some of the entries from those were absolutely brilliant so you know like um the infants we saw brilliant things done about pl planning for a baby coming into the family you might you know and what does the baby gonna need you know like nappies and things and how much is that going to cost and how's mum going to save up um it was really it was really lovely and you can imagine being a fly on the wall in those lessons and just seeing the 
kids really engaged about money stuff. And really importantly, some of the schools that we were involved with said that by introducing personal finance education into the let into their schools, they'd they'd seen positive effects across the board. So they'd seen um, improvements in results. There was one um, school in a quite a deprived area near Peterborough that had introduced a, a currency for the school, so the kids could. Um, earn points towards the school money and they could buy they could then decide how to spend that and um, they could also decide how to spend money as a school and it was really really motivating within the school that there was this focus on on a sort of a personal finance project across the school and the results improved <laughs> it was just amazing the motivation everything it was it, it was it was a very charismatic teacher pioneering that but even so to see money having such a huge effect on on the the school itself was brilliant yeah i think it's a massive see more schools to to embrace it yeah, it's a massive issue i think i think the more that we actually impart and educate um, children of all ages going all the way from infancy as you say up to teenagers and into university um about personal finance education i think the better we would be because we have a level of indebtedness throughout the country and even in institutions, which we shouldn't have. And people are, are now in, in a difficult spot now where they've seen the interest rates rise. The savings, if they've got any, aren't really being, you know, aren't racing the same pace as the interest rates are rising. And we're, we've got difficulties all around at every level. So the more that we can educate within schools, I think is a bit, it's a massive piece that we're missing. And we should have that um, throughout schooling, I think, as a, a mandatory sort of subject. Yeah. And of course, you know, auto enrolments being extended to younger children now. So pensions is coming in at a younger age. Hooray. So you start a job at 18, you'll be enrolled into the pension scheme. Um, and that's a brilliant step forward. It used to be, um, I think it's 21, it used to be. So, um, you know, people will face this long term growth and the power of compounding earlier on. And if they can understand the power of compounding, they'll know they really do need to be in that pension scheme. Um, I was just looking back at, I mean, I mean, one of my regrets is not putting in as much as I possibly could in my 20s into my pension because I'm now approaching 50 and looking at my pensions that I had, that I was contributing to back then. And that it's, it's, it was brilliant looking, you know, yes, uh, you know, all that compounding has really powered up and delivered. And, you know, I wish I'd put more in because those years from 20 to 30 can be crucial. I think there's an illustration, there's a, there's a famous um, money anecdote, which is Jack and Jill. And Jill, who's the sensible one, it's always the woman, isn't it? Puts, puts her money yes. in, yeah. puts the same amount later, yes. every month um, during her twenties uh, and um so for ten years and then and Jack doesn't Jack doesn't put anything in during his twenties. Jack starts at thirty and puts in the same starts putting in the same amount as Jill has done. Jill stops at thirty and just leaves it and and Jack Jack um and Jill um at the when they both reach um sixty, Jack's had to put in a huge amount more than Jill, but because Jill put it in earlier than he did, she's in a better position. Um, and I just love that story. I think it's um, 
it just showcases, you know, why we need to put even small amounts in at the start. I absolutely agree with you. Um, and I want to touch now, if I may, and I'm going to go back to some of the points you've made um, a bit later on. You, you're an advocate um, for investing. You're an educator regarding investing and uh, personal finance. And from what I've read, you're a, you're a believer in a diversified portfolio. So I want to take this time now to talk with you about your investing strategy um, and how you've gone about over the past you know, your working career, saving and investing, your strategy, your strategy, best lessons learned. You've already talked about one of your regrets there a little bit. And just, just educate our investors about the prudent way that you've gone about managing your money as best you can thus far. Well, I mean, I'll start by saying I, I've not really done much dabbling in direct shares. I've always stuck to collective investments where it's um, professionally managed by a fund manager. And I've tended to favour investment trusts over the years. So these are known as the city's best kept, kept secret, aren't they? They're the, they're they the types of funds that fund managers want to manage because they have more control over the investment. So they don't have loads of money coming in and out at random. Um, and there's about... 500 odd investment trusts um and the rest you know and um there some of them some of them are going for hundreds of years there's you know they they're um they're very very well established um they're good at paying out dividends they're, but they're a bit like buying a share in a shares in a company that its ethos and goal is to invest on your behalf so they're like mini companies really um yeah and i just yeah i've built up portfolios of those over the years you know i've been at i've done quite i do tidying up i like to tidy up things along the years i like to sort of um buy um ones that have gone down and sell a bit of the ones that have gone up <laughs> i've never i've never had a, a foolproof system i'm not going to say I, you know i've supposedly an expert but you know we experts don't always do it absolutely brilliantly ourselves but we kind of know the principles to follow so <laughs> so we, we try and keep our asset allocations so the building blocks of the portfolio fairly sound um and i've always held the bulk of it in equities i've always been on the high risk end of that um and I've always tried to keep the costs down on my in my investments. Touch on that, yeah. So I've mm -hmm. um, been a great fan of something called core satellite, which is where you have the absolute bulk of your investments in a really really low cost tracker fund or collection of tracker funds, and then you have um, the interesting bit, the satellites around the edges, things that you think will add value, and that's where I tend to pick investment trusts um yeah and the you know it's been great to see over the last 25 years the charges on investments come down so particularly on tracker funds i think you know back at the start of my career they were all charging one and a half percent one percent and now you can get you know 0.15 percent and get a decent um vanguard tracker fund so you know 
And those, those reducing those charges can have a really positive cumulative effect over the years. So it's always something, I think every year, um, when I do a bit of review of my portfolio, because I do it once a year, I don't do it like every month or every week. I, every every year I have a good trawl through it all. <laughs> um, I, I try and reduce costs basically, see if there's anything cheaper or um, better value out there that I could buy instead of what I'm holding already. Cool. So with regards to, you mentioned the investment trust and you touched on the importance of dividends and compounding. Um, dividend heroes, you've been around, you've been investing for a little while. Do you have any of the dividend heroes in your portfolio? Have you kept some of them, Moira? I do, yes. I've got I've got City of London for <clears throat> the UK yeah. portion of, um, which, you know, is, I've interviewed um, Joe Curtis, who's the fund manager over the years. He's a lovely guy. And he speaks um, complete common sense in a really simple way. I always think if people speak and translate things really well, they must be amazing and clever. You have there's a certain amount of sort of brain that you know can translate things into very um, good into good sound bites and can help you sort of understand what's going on. Anyway, so he's one of those, and he's delivered. Well, really well over the years for me um and then i hold i hold the oldest investment trust of course i hold f and c which has been going for well over 150 years um that's globally diversified it holds um bits of private equity as well so it gives you a sort of an asset exposure to an asset class that i wouldn't um be holding otherwise um so they are they're, they're two of my favorites and I was trying I was talking to my husband the other day about investing and those two came up because I was thinking you know he really needs to get going with this stuff and I said we just check these two out because mm. I think they're you know they're, they're solid things that you can hold for the next 10 years brilliant no thank you thank you for that you, you touched on the charges side of it as well but I wanted you to to expand a little bit if, if, I, if I could ask you to about why it's important for all of us to consider investing in the most tax efficient way as well because obviously we're all getting taxed here right left right and center but we should also maximize the tax efficiency of our of our savings and keeping it in a wrapper of sorts yeah well i mean i this was illustrated to me um last summer i went on a camping trip with some parents from my children's school <laughs> <laughs> and the chick kids as well we were basically taking the kids camping and one of the fathers would want to talk to me about investing and he said he, he'd had some great success during the pandemic with tesla and you know he you know he piled into it he was quite a wealthy guy and he it done really well for him and then he was dealing with the tax bill i was like why are you dealing with the tax bill he said Oh, he'd been on, I'm not going to name the platform, but he'd been on one of the newer platforms, which didn't yes. offer an ISA. Of course. So, and the, so he hadn't got, hadn't been holding Tesla sheltered from capital gains tax, basically. Um, I threw, you know, just because he didn't know he, he should. <laughs> and so he'd, he'd had this big tax bill to pay 20% at the end of it. Um, yeah, so if you hold if he'd held it in in an ISA in an individual savings account, he wouldn't have had any tax to pay on the growth, <laughs> um, and that's really important. And you know, obviously, that applies to income investing as well. If you've got 
um, shares or um, other investments that provide an income in form of dividends or coupons or whatever it is, then an ISA stops you paying in, uh, ta extra tax on those. So it's a really good um, place to do it. Um, but pensions do the same for you. So if you hold, um, if you can afford to stash your money away and lock it away in a pension, because that's effectively what you do, you can't get the money out of a pension until you're 55 um, at the moment. And it, and it may, that age may go up. So a state pension age increases, the private pension age for access might increase as well. You have to be a bit wary of that. Um, so if you lock your money away into a pension for, for that long, it can grow free of the income and capital gains taxes that it would otherwise um, have outside a pension. Of course, the beauty of putting into a pension at the moment is you're getting up from income tax relief on your contributions, which means you get like free money from the government when you put the money in. Um, and so you can reduce the income tax that you're paying this year by putting your money into a pension. Um, you will pay tax when you come to retirement, but um, you might be on a lower tax rate by then. <laughs> so it could work out really efficiently for you. Um, yeah, so use ISAs and pensions to the max is the message. Um, and the, the allowances for them are really generous. You can put up to 20,000 in an ISA, you can put up to 60,000 in a pension after the chancellor up to, uh, raised it from 40,000 in the latest budget. So um, I think for most people that's sufficient. <laughs> um, you have to be very wealthy to be able to bust those allowances for your investments. Yeah, I was going to touch on this later, but I'll, I'll, I'll throw it out there now. Um, and there's a term that I saw, which I haven't seen before, and it was used, um, casino politics and the constant chopping and changing of rules and thresholds um, with regards to pensions and retirement planning. If qualified professionals in the investment industry struggling to keep up, what what help, what hope is there for, for the ordinary private investor to know what to do with pensions, Myra? It's just, it just keeps changing every six months to a year, doesn't it? It's very confusing and people don't trust the policy as a result. Um, there have been some sort of cross-party projects to try and get pensions policy fixed for the next generation and they haven't really failed. There's still this constant tinkering with whether it's lifetime allowance used to be tinkered with now it's been scrapped but Labour say they'll reintroduce it um and you know the constant you know how much you can put in um people just worry that the revenue will come and take a chunk when they reach retirement but I think the sanguine sort of reasoned approach is you can only deal with what's there at the moment so you have to just keep going and using these tax efficient allowances because it's far better to use them what's available now um, and, have, and have the risk that a future government might take a chunk out of it than not use them at all now and be guaranteed that chunks of your investments are going out. So I think that's the that's my message is you need to use them. Um, and write your MP and say, you know, raise raise it as an important issue. Say we we mustn't tinker with these allowances; they're so important. Um, I you know we we've got to be 
if, if you if you are going to reduce anything any changes we need adequate notice of that i think the example of people not being given adequate notice on pensions is the what's called the waspy women so the women um in that who were told with very little notice that their state pension age was going to rise um apparently the government claims it did communicate this but it obviously didn't communicate it very well so whatever was posted out to people or or or, or put on government websites didn't get through to the people who were going to be most affected by it um and i think any any major policy change people need 10 years to plan for it sometimes you need to give, you know, I think that's adequate notice is 10 years that the state pension age is going to change or the private pension age is going to go up um, or we're going to um, reduce um, this allowance or whatever it is, give, give people adequate time. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with you. And uh, you, you've always been, and from the material I've read um, that you've put out um, historically, an advocate for more women to take control of their own financial destiny and invest more. Um, what could the industry do more, uh, Moira, to encourage and educate women more to actually, you know, invest more? Well, I, I'm very against the pink, what I call the pinkification of financial services. So I don't think women need bespoke um, websites or anything like that or um, they don't need to be spoken to in a different way um, but what they do need is jargon free um, things explained in very simple terms I think everybody needs that it's not just women um, I think the industry just needs to communicate better and to also um, give you know I think events where there are safe spaces in which women can talk um, and raise questions in an environment where they're not going to feel patronised, they're not going to feel like they're asking the dumb stuff or whatever it is. Um, I think those those can be really successful and reassuring. Um, I've been trying to create those with my own peer group, my own friendship groups recently. <laughs> Let's have, you know, a coffee and cake or a glass of wine and we'll sit and we talk about pension stuff and you know i give you some useful resources and you can ask me the questions that you know you need so i've been doing basically a bit of financial mentoring and people come away from that the women come away from that feeling empowered um seeing seeing quite a lot of um firms doing this but they're not they're not financial providers they're more of events firms doing it and i think it's it can work really really well um yeah i i just think uh, young young men i saw on the investors chronicle would go gung-ho into investing thinking they were masters of the universe <laughs> and buying a whole load of high risk you know stuff that was obviously going to end it up in disaster um but at least they were going into it and ho. but you know women don't they like they take a much more well, stereotyping but um they take a much more reasoned approach to it so they want to understand it really well before they step into it um and and i think that's what holds people back they they don't um they don't want to risk it so much um thing is 
once women are investing, they invest very, very similarly to men. I mean, there's no, you know, there's no real real evidence that people do, you know, the sexes do it differently. It's just taking the steps in that's different. Um, I think once you, uh, you've got a portfolio together, you'll find women make really sensible decisions. They, they don't, you know, they, 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 um, they hold things in a fairly similar proportion to the men. We saw we saw this on the Interact Investors website, you know, and we had um we had a hundred thousand female customers. So we were qualified to talk about it. You know, they, they really didn't um invest very differently to the male cohorts. There are just fewer of them. Yeah. However, the research shows that over the long term, women outperform this the their male peer group regarding investing over the long term. So could the investment industry do with and have a rosier future if they invested in female investors and also had more female fund managers? Oh, gosh, yeah. Definitely need to see more of those. There's the horrible Morningstar survey, which said there are more, it's a couple of years back, said there are more fund Dave. managers called Dave than there are yes. female fund managers. That's <laughs> just like- So sad. It's horrifying. <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah. I think yeah. I mean, yeah. Absolutely. You need to. Yeah, we need to. The industry needs to model it. You need to have female spokespeople, female uh, professional fund managers, female financial advisors. You know, it's, it's diversity and inclusion. You know, got to model that everybody's involved. You know, and and it, it it's not just you know the sex difference. There's also so you know so many different social strata there's ethnicity all of that needs to be role modeled within the financial services industry um to make it universally appealing to different sections of the population absolutely agree with you now i'm, I'm going to just change this slightly because i was going to ask this question much later on but you've, you've seen it on a very perfect point and and seen you for this um segue to this question um, you contributed a, a, a fantastic chapter to the wonderful book, Inspirational Investing, What Matters in the World of Investing for Women by Women, edited by Amanda Taylor, alongside some amazing contributors that include Annabelle Brody-Smith, Rosie Carr, Rebecca O'Connor, Merrin Somerset-Well, um, Carl Parner Fitzpatrick and Claire Barrett. Now, can you tell us a little bit about your chapter without giving away too much about the whole book? Because trying to inspire not just women but everybody to invest um per se i do remember what i wrote i think i wrote about risk didn't i and it was um it was about um how investment risk differs from our normal understanding of risk so you know in everyday life um you know if you went rock climbing or skiing or or um, bungee jumping that would be a risky thing to do or if you were into you know renovating properties or whatever it is you know there are the things that you can think oh that's something a high risk person would do now in investing taking a high risk uh, means putting your money into something that can be volatile that will go up and down over the lifetime of your investing but the thing is you can effectively reduce the reduce the risk of those high risk investments by holding them for the very very long term so if you know something's going to be volatile over the next um few years um if you hold it for 30 years 
um, the graph with all the bumps in it actually looks quite smooth. <laughs> um, so it's, um, yeah, I think it's just understanding investment risk. Maybe we need a new term. Um, it's, it's, you know, uh, people can lower their risks by doing the sensible stuff with investing. You know, you can spread your money between different investments to lower your risk. There's all sorts of things you can do, but you might still be labeled a high risk investor, um, but you're doing the really sensible things. So, for example, if you're in your twenties and you're putting everything into equities, which are the highest risk type of investment, that is a really sensible thing to be doing. As long as you're locking the money away, and you're not going to touch it, and you're not going to need it next year, um, you know you should. But people aren't encouraged to be high risk. So they need to educate themselves to understand what that means in terms of investing. Thank you very, very much for that. Now, you, you've, you've talked about risk and volatility. Now, one of the mainstays that we see a lot, and you talked about, talked about it earlier about people chasing trends and all the rest of it and, and, and keeping lots of different new things in their portfolio and being over diversified. Now, as an investor, what is the best way to combat fear of missing out? We see it in, in the press all the time. FOMO. We've seen what's going on with the shockwaves that's happening regarding banks now. Um, how would how would investors best combat FOMO in in your eyes, Moira? Well, there's FOMO and there's also fear, isn't there? There's two different things going on. Yes, yeah, they're very it's close all together. About the, psychologically. Yeah, it's all about the noise that's going on around you and people Absolutely. saying, oh, it's a good time to get in or it's not a good time to get in. Everybody will always have a view. There'll always be a reason not to invest, whether it's war, COVID, the biggies, or it's just, you know, oh, uh, my, the cab driver tells you he doesn't like M&S shares or whatever it you know. is. <laughs> There's always there's always something. There's a reason not to, or you are feeling nervous because something else going on in your life. You know, like thinking, oh, I shouldn't put that money away because the kids might need it, or uh, whatever it is. Um, and then there's also the you know the fear of fear of missing out. I think you know missed opportunities, or I'm not timing it right, or whatever it is, and and feel like oh, I, I shouldn't invest in. Tesla because it's already go, gone up so much um you know and I think really combat this by by selecting a sensible diversified portfolio of investments and drip feed your money in so put the same money amount of money in every month um and it comes out of your your income um or your salary um if you're self-employed you might want to just do it less regularly but you know make sure that it is regular um and just just let it build up um so you pay yourself first you get used to not having that money and you put it into a sensible suite of investments and don't check it too often <laughs> so don't check you know in every day to see whether it's gone up or gone down because that will make you feel like you've got to act on it just leave it check in every few months you could even leave it check it in once checking on it once a year if, it, if you're happy with the building blocks that you've put in place um, and just let it grow over time well, i love what you said there uh, there's a bit that you said there i just went oh i need to need to just go back to that pay yourself first you said there and the and the beauty of pound cost averaging together absolute marriage made in heaven for 
achieving financial freedom. So yeah, I love that phraseology that you put there. Now, Moira, I'm conscious of the time, so I've got two last questions for you. Um, and I want you to go back really um, and reiterate to our private investors, professional investors, institutional investors, um, the global investing matters audience, what really, truly matters to you regarding investing? What's the most burning and most important thing regarding it all for you? Oh, it's tough. Um, I'm going to say charges. Keep your charges low. Um, I mean, that that's that's for your sake. And it's also because it's the only way <laughs> we're going to make this industry change. Um, so, you know, layers of charge. There are layers of charges that go on um, and, you know, just watch out for them. Um, because you don't want to pay for somebody else's yacht. You really want your own yacht in retirement if you can have it. Brilliant. Love that reply. Now, a fun question to end with, Moira, for you. Um, I'm going to bestow upon you the powers to change something, anything that would enable um, the, the advancement and betterment of your two teenage children and the whole population, the whole planet of Earth, what would you change and why? I've given you the, the wand, you can do whatever you want. Yes. Um, so I'm gonna go back to pensions policy and just say, you know, make sure that it stays, you know, that we don't have changes so people can deal with what they have and know it's gonna stay. Um, but I'd also like to see a bit of simplification, simplification in pensions because it's hugely complex, difficult for people to understand. Um, and I'd also like to see some education on the amount you need to put into a pension um, because auto-enrolment is about 8% of your outgoings and it really needs to be higher needs to be 12% for people to have really good retirement outcomes. So I think there's a, there's an education piece to be made. Brilliant. Um, that's that's absolutely brilliant, Moira. It's been an absolute joy to have you on. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing you doing all of the work that you do going forward, um, uh, freelancing now. You're still a columnist with um, Financial Times as well um, and, and uh, the weekend paper as well. And we're going to see you at the... The master investor show um and i, I want to keep in touch with you because i've got some ideas with regards to how we could actually collaborate um with regards to london southeast investing matters to encourage more and more people to be prudent and carry on educating them so if we can keep in touch that would be absolutely great wow great yeah love to it's been fun talking all right thank you ever so much that was moira o'neill the award-winning journalist and um, we're going to see much more of Moira um, going forward um, as we continue our drive to educate others. Moira, thank you ever so much. Take care. God bless. Pleasure. Bye. Thank you for taking the time to listen to Investing Matters. Be sure to check out the London Southeast website for free tools and info to research your next investment. You can also join in the conversation on our social media channels. And don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel for more content, including our CEO interviews. Catch you next time.